0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of February 9th, 2023. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. The Long Way Home Our in-depth look at the housing crisis. Governor stresses more housing is key to Colorado's economic health. By Ellis Arnold. The Long Way Home. State Leaders, Communities Search for Solutions. By Michael DeIuana. The Missing Middle. Cities Where Six-Figure Salaries Can't Buy Homes. By McKenna Harford. The Long Way Home, our in-depth look at the housing crisis. Governor stresses more housing is key to Colorado's economic health, by Ellis Arnold. If lawmakers don't act to make housing more affordable now, quote, we will soon face a spiraling point of no return, end quote. That's what Governor Jared Polis said in January during his annual State of the State Address. He noted myriad problems linked to rising housing costs. People, he said, quote, are being forced out of their neighborhoods with no hope of ever living close to where they work. That means more traffic, lost time and money spent on long commutes, more air pollution and greater economic and workforce challenges, Polis said. Polis added that rising housing prices, quote, are putting the dream of homeownership out of range for more and more Coloradans. The governor's assessment squares with the findings of Colorado Community Media in our four-week series exploring what many experts say is a housing crisis, one that affects practically everyone in the Denver area. Lower-income workers are seeing larger chunks of their paychecks go to landlords. Young families can't find starter homes they can afford. Retirees don't see any attractive options for moving and downsizing, meaning their homes stay off the market, helping keep prices high. Just look west, Polis said in his address. In California, decades of poor planning has led to interruptions of drinking water and electricity for entire towns and cities. Average home price is over $1 million in major cities and 16-lane freeways. With, quote, Bumper to bumper traffic. The governor then pivoted to what he sees as solutions. Since 2019, he said billions of dollars have been invested in housing. For instance, American Rescue Plan Act funds have gone towards projects around the state, he said. And Colorado voters in November passed Proposition 123, which is expected to bring hundreds of millions more dollars to affordable housing efforts in the years ahead. Quote, but we can't just buy our way out of this, Polis added. Public officials, he said, need to break down rules that stand in the way of building more housing. That idea resonates with experts like Christy Rogers, who teaches housing policy at the University of Colorado Boulder. Where are our starter homes, Rogers said? Where's our ability to provide housing for a bunch of different income levels? Many communities need more variety. Some need more density. Housing units built closer together, she said. Housing advocates often point to, quote, the middle, homes that are neither large, single-family units, nor big apartment complexes. The middle consists of smaller single-family units and condos that get people their first foothold in home ownership, a home that they can build equity in and, as their family grows, sell, and reinvest the profits to upgrade to a bigger one. The governor appears to be headed in a direction where that kind of market is more possible. He said he wants to, quote, legalize more housing choices for every Coloradan, while protecting the character of the state. Yet it is an idea marked mostly by the sweeping language of the governor's speech, at least for now. Colorado Community Media asked for the governor for more details since his address. In one statement, the governor said only that, quote, across our state we need more housing for purchase and for rent at a lower price. And I look forward to working on all ways we can help make this happen. In another sign, the governor touted Lakewood's, quote, forward looking vision after he visited an apartment complex that includes some below-market-rate units and sits next to an RTD rail line. Big spending. Another hint at what the governor wants came in response to questions after his State of the State address. Polis said that he doesn't want the state to get mired in age-old local debates over what the ideal mix is between affordable and market-rate housing. There is no state AMI figure that works for Summit County, for Denver, and for Boulder, Polis said, in a reference to area median income, a measure often used to determine who is eligible for housing assistance. However, the mix of new homes might look... Colorado is wading deeper into spending to boost the supply of less costly housing. Just days before the governor's speech... The state announced a new program expected to help create up to 5,000 quote high-quality, low-cost housing units over the next five years. The Innovative Housing Incentive Program directs funding to Colorado-based housing manufacturers in an effort to boost the supply of houses that aren't built traditionally. That includes modular homes or factory-made houses that are assembled at the location where the homeowner will move in. Polis touted a company from the mountain town of Buena Vista, saying, quote, it can build a home in roughly 18 working days, compared to a year for traditionally built homes. Alone, 5,000 new homes over several years won't make a huge dent, but the state is also armed with other new initiatives. Proposition 123 requires state officials to set money aside for more affordable housing and related programs. The money could go toward grants and loans to local governments and nonprofits to acquire land for affordable housing developments. Funds could also go to help develop multifamily rentals, including apartments and programs that help first time homebuyers, among other efforts. As Proposition 123 ramps up, Eventually, about $300 million a year will be spent around the state on such efforts. Poll's office also highlighted how millions of dollars in federal economic recovery funds were spent amid the response to the coronavirus pandemic. In the last year, the state invested roughly $830 million into housing, including roughly $400 million based on funds from the Federal American Rescue Plan Act in programs passed by state lawmakers, including affordable housing spending detailed in House Bill 22-1304, which provides grants to local governments and nonprofits towards investments in affordable housing and housing-related matters, a loan program under Senate Bill 22-159 to make investments in affordable housing, the loan and grant program under Senate Bill 22160 to provide assistance in financing to mobilize homeowners seeking to organize and purchase their mobile home parks. The expansion of, quote, the Middle Income Access Program of the Colorado Housing and Finance Authority under Senate Bill 22146. The authority, a state entity, invests in affordable housing. The Infrastructure and Strong Communities Program, also under House Bill 221304, to provide grants to enable local governments to invest in infrastructure projects that support affordable housing. Those investments build upon an additional $460 million in emergency rental assistance, $180 million in homeowner assistance, and $7 million in vouchers that Colorado also invested using federal funds the governor's office told CCM. Polis portrayed housing as integral to the fabric of Colorado, placing it in the larger context of climate, economic, and water policy. Building smart, efficient housing statewide, especially in urban communities and job centers, won't reduce costs. It will save energy, conserve our water, and protect the lands and wildlife that are so important to our Colorado way of life, Polis said. Beyond spending, zoning is an important tool that officials, from the governor to city leaders, are looking at tweaking in hopes of alleviating the rising cost of housing and its effects on communities. State role in the mix. It's a conversation that is older than many Coloradans. Making the case for new policies today, Polis harked back to changes from five decades ago. The last time Colorado made major land use changes was in 1974, before I and most of you were born, Polis said. We were a different state then. The governor's office didn't specify to CCM about those changes, but at least two pieces of legislation arose that year that affected how local governments regulate how land is used. Polis seemed to tease at the possibility of state intervention in how local communities govern housing. Since issues like transportation, water, energy, and more inherently cross jurisdictional boundaries, it becomes a statewide problem that truly impacts all of us, Polis said. He spoke of the need for more flexible zoning to allow more housing and, quote, streamlined regulations that cut through red tape. He touched on expedited approval processes for projects like modular housing, sustainable development, and more building- and transit-oriented communities. The governor in his office also didn't specify what changes to zoning policy he would support or oppose. Polis has not not said that he wants to change the state to require zoning changes in cities. Instead, the governor spoke about the state leaning in on an existing policy. We want to lean into allowing local governments to use tools like inclusionary zoning to help create the right mix for their community. And I think that local input and design is very important, Polis said in a January 17th news conference following his address. So-called inclusionary housing policies typically ask property developers to set aside a percentage of units in new developments for affordable housing. Although... Developers are given different op- options to fulfill those requirements, the Colorado Sun has reported. The landscape of local government's power to affect housing affordability in Colorado saw a big change recently. In 2021, Polis signed State House Bill 211117, allowing cities to impose affordable housing requirements on new or redeveloped projects so long as developers or property owners have alternatives. For example, they could trade those for affordable units built elsewhere, pay a fee into an affordable housing fund, or any number of other options the Sun reported. It's unclear whether Polis would support anything further than the existing allowance for cities to use inclusionary zoning. As of late January, the governor was focused on gathering input to work with state lawmakers and develop a proposal on land use policy. As of press deadline, no bill had been introduced. Can't expect to lose money. Polis noted the wide gap that has opened between housing prices and people's income over the last several decades, putting home ownership out of reach for many families. More government spending on housing is part of the solution to affordability, experts told CCM, including Yona Freemark, senior research associate at the nonprofit Urban Institute based in Washington, D.C. Assuming that we can rely entirely on the private market to address the affordable housing need is, I think, unrealistic and unlikely to address the needs of the people who have lost who have the lowest incomes. Freemark said Ron Throop associate professor of real estate at the Daniel's College of Business at the University of Denver said it's inevitable that governments that government must provide the funding the needed funding to bolster the supply side of the housing market we do things on the supply side but it's not enough Throop said, and you can't expect a developer to build something and lose money. Spending from higher levels of government could benefit in particular the suburbs, which are struggling with housing affordability, but also have less political appetite to tackle the problems themselves, Freemark said. Quote, ultimately, the most exclusionary places, which are often suburbs, have no incentive to invest in affordable housing. Because they don't see an affordable housing as needed by their residents, Freemark said. That said, creating housing affordability for key workers like teachers, police, and firefighters is an important part of the puzzle for communities, Throop said. You lose your teachers, and then you lose the quality of your schools, and it hurts the area. Same with police and fire, Throop said. In the larger business community, housing plays a crucial role, too, Polis said. Quote, Coloradans have to be able to afford to live in our communities where they can earn a good living, and companies need to be able to find the workers they need to thrive, he said in a speech. We are not California. The governor's one-liner when speaking about housing, we are not California, we are Colorado, raises the question of where the state could be headed if it doesn't change course. Net migration, the difference between the number of people coming into and the number of people leaving an area, has long been positive in Colorado. In 2015, net migration was about 69,000 people, according to the state demography office. Although the number reached a recent pre-pandemic low in 2019, with about 34,000 newcomers and still flowing in. There are home buyers moving in from out of state, and many of them come from higher-priced areas, so they don't have sticker shocks, Throop said, speaking to the sustained high demand and high prices in Metro Denver. Looking to the future, Throop doesn't think the Metro Denver housing market is on a similar trajectory that large metro areas such as New York City and San Francisco have experienced in terms of high housing prices. New York is a coastal city and a financial center. Same with several California cities. San Francisco we will never be that. We're our own animal, Throop said. The choice between those cities and Denver, pricing-wise, has been extreme. It'll tighten up. It'll never be their prices, but it'll tighten up, Throop added. Fremark noted that, geographically, Denver has less of a physical barrier to new construction than in places like San Francisco and that New York City is largely surrounded by water. Rogers, the teaching assistant professor in the Program for Environmental Design at CU Boulder, described the Metro Denver housing market's future in terms of uncertainty. I think that we are in a place we've never been before, so I can't extrapolate the future from that, Rogers said. I feel like we're in unknown waters. The Long Way Home. Contributors to the project include Michael De Juana, Lisa Schlichtman, Thelma Grimes, Kristen Fiore, Scott Taylor, Christy Stedman, Deborah Grigsby-Smith, Scott Gilbert, Deb hurley Brobst, Ellis Arnold, Elliot Winsler, Robert Tan, Riley Dunn, Andrew Fraley, Olivia Love, Corinne Westman, McKenna Hartford, Taylor Shaw, Nina Jose, Haley Lena, Balin Ward, Luke Zarzecki, Leah Nu, Ben Wiebisick, Steve Smith. State Leaders Communities Search for Solutions by Michael Dayuana. For a month, our reporters and editors have brought you stories of your neighbors, your would-be neighbors, and even people who struggle to survive under bridges. We are all affected by the rising costs of housing across the Denver area. The problem is clear. Prices for homes and rents have skyrocketed in recent years, and though the trends show signs of leveling out, prices are nothing like they were just a few years ago. Jumps in values of hundreds of thousands of dollars were common in the past five years. For instance, in Brighton, northeast of Denver, and Littleton, to the south, home values rose $225,000 to $300,000, respectively, between 2017 and 2022. Renters are also giving more of their paychecks to their landlords. Experts at Denver-based Root Policy Research, which studies housing issues, say 700,000 Colorado families are, quote, cost-burdened. The term describes households that devote 30% or more of their income to rent or mortgages. Alarmingly, even families earning as much as $75,000 can be considered burdened. This week, We look at potential solutions, starting with some espoused by Jared Polis, the Democratic governor, who last month surprised us with his intense focus on housing during his annual State of the State Address. Colorado, quote, will soon face a spiraling point of no return, end quote, if housing remains on the course that it is now, Polis said. Senior reporter Ellis Arnold rushed to the Capitol for Poll's news conference after the speech, getting a few off-the-cuff answers. Billions of dollars have already been spent in recent years to make housing more affordable, the governor says. He highlighted Federal American Rescue Plan Act funds, the stimulus that came during COVID-19 pandemic. Also, Colorado voters in November decided to earmark hundreds of millions of dollars a year through Proposition 123, which backs local housing affordability efforts. Yet for all the tax dollars involved, the governor says we can't just buy our way out of this. Local rules like zoning need to be addressed too, he said. Experts have told our reporters the same. Reporter McKenna Harford looks at how changes to zoning, among other strategies, can make housing more affordable. Meanwhile, reporter Luke Zarzecki looks at how the development of our cities contributes to health harming pollution and how ideas like better planned transit can improve our air and reduce climate change. Reporters Balin Ward and Steve Smith look at tiny homes and how difficult it can be to find a home even with some help. In the end, there is no one no one solution. And frankly, the problem looks like it will continue and potentially worsen in the months ahead. Yet we acknowledge efforts to reverse the trend including collaborations between federal, state and local officials on myriad projects in our communities. We also hope that they are successful And that Colorado does not turn into what Polis decries, his portrayal of California as a poorly planned nightmare where residents face shortages in drinking water, commute on clogged highways, and pay $1 million for a typical home. In the months ahead, we plan to follow up with officials and hold them accountable for their promises to improve the situation. We will ask for specifics and then seek out local leaders and residents for their reactions. We also plan forums where our leaders and local leaders can join us to speak about the work that needs to be done. In the meantime, we welcome your letters with ideas. The Missing Middle, Cities Where Six-Figure Salaries Can't Buy Homes by McKenna Harford Aldia Odushin's Littleton home is a wish come true. The house is close to the school bus stop, near work, and even has a guest room where Odushin's father stays when he visits. We have good neighbors who have children the same age, so they play together, and I'm so happy here, Odushin said. Originally originally from Tizi Azou, Algeria, Odashin, her husband and two children moved to Littleton in October 2020. In Algeria, Odashin's family lived in a house they could afford on her and her husband's incomes as French teachers. When they moved to Littleton, Odashin said it was a challenge. When we came here, we started our life from scratch, she said. Here to teach French, I have to learn English first. To make ends meet, Orachine and her husband took full-time positions with Walmart. But even then, the high cost of housing put ownership outside of their budget. Instead, they rented a two-bedroom apartment. With the apartment, life was stressful for us, she said. There wasn't a lot of space and no place for the children to play. Odashin's family needed more space and privacy, so they kept looking for a house. Odashin said her family told her about Habitat for Humanity. The national nonprofit vision is, quote, a world where everyone has a decent place to live. And affordability is a major part of the organization's vision. The application process took about a year, but Odashin said there was no way her family would have a house without Habitat for Humanity Metro Denver's help. In the end, the organization provided an opportunity for their family to invest in a home within their budget. We would have had to wait to have the budget without Habitat, she said. It was so fast. Now I'm happy to pay the mortgage because it goes into our home. From 2017 to 2022, the average home price in Littleton has gone up $300,000, but the city is not alone. Over the same period, Brighton saw home prices increase $225,000. Arvada saw a $275,000 increase, and Lone Tree Homes are up more than $470,000 on average. As finding affordable housing becomes harder for a growing number of Colorado families, Municipalities and nonprofits are looking to expand existing solutions like inclusionary zoning, community land trusts, and deed restrictions. Communities that have implemented one or more of these approaches report increasing their affordable housing stock, though officials emphasize that the complexity of Colorado's housing situation means there is no silver bullet. However, across the board, Key element to getting supports for the expansion of affordable housing programs is changing the mindset of who benefits from them. Supply, but for whom? Another impact of rising housing costs throughout the metro area, many communities are reaching a critical point where a majority of workers can't afford to live where they're employed. Corey Wrights, executive director for South Metro Housing Options, an affordable housing provider that serves Littleton and Arapahoe County, said housing prices are now unaffordable even for people who take home a solid paycheck. That includes earners topping $82,000, the median household income in Adams, Arapahoe, Douglas, and Jefferson Counties. according to data from the Colorado Housing and Finance Authority. In the past, there was an affordable housing issue around those lower area median income homes, but we're to a point right now where affordability impacts so many people across a larger spectrum, Wrights said. Across the state, the share of housing affordable to Coloradans has dropped significantly. In 2021, just 51% of the state's housing stock was affordable for median income earners. That's down from 76% in 2015, according to research from the Colorado Futures Center, a nonprofit research group out of Colorado State University. Phyllis Resnick and Jennifer Newcomer, the authors of the study, said they believe the continuous rise in pricing even as the housing supply grows indicates a mismatch in the kind of housing needed and the kind of housing being built. There is supply, but supply for who and at what monetary level? Newcomer asked. It looks like this. Subdivisions of four and five bedroom homes, handfuls of luxury apartments, and few, if any, condos and starter homes. The thing that we're trying to figure out how to illuminate most, specifically in this nuanced distinction between total rooftops and this notion of supply with respect to availability, Newcomer said. Resnick said the current market doesn't incentivize the construction of lower-cost housing. But per her 2021 analysis, housing values in Colorado would need to drop by roughly one-third to return to the 2015 levels of affordability. Something unlikely to happen, experts have told Colorado Community Media throughout our four-week housing series. The ones feeling the crunch the most are those who earn the least money, though many of those struggling to afford housing have above-average salaries. I suspect when we finish our research, we're going to find that housing that is affordable to people who are closer to the economic margins is sort of not feasible in the sense of being profitable for the folks who need to be out there building that housing, Resnick said. A golden cap. Without the market providing entry-level housing or starter homes, nonprofits and local governments have stepped in to try to fill the gap by subsidizing building and buying costs. An extreme example is the city of Golden, where 95% of its workforce lives outside city limits. Just this month, The city applied for a grant to support a $65 million partnership with Habitat for Humanity to construct 120 for-sale condos and townhomes for residents making 80% of the area median income for households. That's roughly $65,000 for an individual and around $93,000 for a family of four. Golden recently completed a housing needs assessment in October which found that both housing prices and rent increased exponentially in less than a decade. The cost of the average house in the city doubled between 2015 and 2022. For the first half of 2022, the average single-family home sold for $1 million, up from $533,000 in 2015. This means even relatively high-income earners in Golden are considered by the city to be burdened by housing costs. The majority of the housing that we're projected to need in the next 10 years will need to serve households at or above 120% area median income. Golden Housing Coordinator Janet McCubbin said, So you're looking at households that would make well into six figures and yet there's not, not housing that exists for them in Golden. McCubbin said the newly formed Affordable Housing Committee is expected to meet in February and will begin to shape the city's response and goals for addressing housing needs. Land and Options Habitat for Humanity Metro Denver's approach to providing affordable housing is to tackle two of the most expensive elements of housing, land and labor. CEO Heather Lafferty said the organization, which works in Adams, Arapahoe, Denver, Douglas, and Jefferson counties, relies on partnerships with developers as well as volunteers and program recipients to provide the labor. To create affordable housing that stays affordable into the future, the organization utilizes Colorado Community Land Trust and deed restrictions. Under the land trust model, land is owned by a community trust or a nonprofit so homeowners only pay for the cost of the home. The trust currently has 215 properties, including townhomes and single-family homes, which serve households at or below 80% median income. Quote, It used to be that if we could just create an affordable product, it would be something that would be affordable in the future, just naturally. And that's not the case today, Lafferty said. What the Community Land Trust does is... Then in law, in perpetuity, it only allows those homes to be sold to home buyers in a similar income category. So it provides affordability initially, but it also ensures 20 years from now it is sold with an income restriction. In addition to the trust, Habitat for Humanity Metro Denver also uses deed restrictions to ensure homeowners meet income requirements. Lafferty said the models are successful because they provide lower-cost housing while allowing homeowners to still build equity and eventually move into market rate housing. What we find is that a home buyer who's able to get into home ownership at a price point that works for them and they're they then are able to build equity, she said. It's really a stepping stone for people who are trying to get into home ownership and benefits from the equity home ownership allows households to build. But it also means that it's not the kind of thing that happens for one family only. One of Colorado's largest land trusts, Elevation Community Land Trust, which serves Denver, Boulder, Aurora, Longmont, and Fort Collins, has created 700 affordable homes and served around 2,000 residents in its first five years of operating. Rodney Milton, a board member for the Elevation Community Land Trust and executive director of the Urban Land Institute, said another benefit to having shared lands is it helps to prevent displacement and keeps communities intact. Quote, The problem with reaping full equity is you can leave, and the next person who buys the house could afford to buy it at a higher price, and you lose the affordability, Milton said. The land trust locks in affordability, but it also locks in community dynamics. Habitat's plan to purchase more land in its five-county service area is evidence that the organization believes in the land trust model for successfully housing more people, Lafferty said. We don't anticipate land getting any less expensive, even if the market cools, she said. We have an urgency and a problem today that we're trying to meet, as well as a long-term problem that we anticipate. So we're trying to solve for both today and tomorrow. Lafferty said one of the biggest challenges to expanding programs to serve more lower-income households and add moderate-income households is money. Last year, her organization received a $13.5 million donation from philanthropist Mackenzie Scott, an Amazon stakeholder which allowed the organization to buy more property. Even still, Lafferty said that Habitat likely only meets, quote, a fraction of a percentage of existing demand. We have a need in the metro area for tens of thousands of affordable houses, Lafferty said. That's why we need bigger, bolder action. Inclusionary zoning. Another tactic some municipalities are taking is to use a relatively new tool in Colorado, inclusionary zoning ordinances. State lawmakers in 2019 approved a law to allow cities and towns to require developments to include a certain number of affordable housing units or pay fees. So far, only six communities have implemented inclusionary zoning. Broomfield, Boulder, Longmont, Superior, Denver, and most recently, Littleton. Littleton's Inclusionary Housing Ordinance, which went into place in November, requires all new residential developments in the city with five or more units to make at least 5% of those units affordable to people at or below 80% area median income for households. Which is $62,000 for an individual or $89,000 for a family of four. If developers do not include affordable units, the inclusionary housing ordinance will levy hundreds of thousands in fees against them to be paid to the city that can be used, then be used on other affordable housing related projects. With upcoming development in the city, more than 2,500 proposed housing units will now be subject to the ordinance, presenting the potential for at least 125 affordable units. Littleton District 3 Council Member Steve Barr said at the November 1st Council meeting that he is, quote, not under any impression that the ordinance is going to solve housing affordability in Littleton or South Metro Denver, but that it provides a critical tool for addressing the crisis. Developers and others at the meeting voiced concerns about the ordinance making development cost too costly or difficult and warned it could result in a decrease in the overall available housing. Morgan Cullen, Director of Government Affairs at the Home Builders Association of Metro Denver, told the Littleton Council that the ordinance could burden developers to the point where projects wouldn't be profitable, resulting in no new developments. Quote, the additional affordable units required by this ordinance will not be built if developers and builders decide that Littleton is not a suitable place to invest in the future, Colin said. However, Broomfield Housing Programs Manager Sharon Tessier said in an email that its inclusionary housing ordinance has resulted in 580 affordable rental units and 43 affordable for-sale homes in two years. She said when the ordinance was initially in place, a majority of developers chose to pay the fee instead of building affordable units. Quote, it allowed us to provide seed money to our new independent housing authority, the Broomfield Housing Alliance, and other critical affordable housing projects, she said. However, we recognized that we needed To make some adjustments to our original approach, both based on the initial data from the program, as well as through comments from developers, uh, other stakeholders and the community that create better and more balanced opportunities for developers to provide on site units while still providing the option to pay the cash in lieu fee. The original ordinance required for sale single-family home developments with more than 25 units to restrict one-tenth of the units to 80% of area median income or pay a fee in lieu. The new ordinance, updated late last year, requires for sale single-family home developments with more than 25 units to restrict 12% of the homes to 100% area median income. It also increases the fee in lieu based on market rate adjustments. Tessier said the reason the Inclusionary Housing Ordinance was implemented in 2020 was to provide the chance for more people to live where they work. The idea was to expand housing affordability and to target those households that typically fall in the middle of the housing needs spectrum. Meaning it would benefit those who are low middle to middle income earners, she said. In other words, it assists essential workers like the people who teach our children who fight fires and keep our city safe. Nina Joss, Rob Tan, and Corinne Westeman contributed to this story. The Battle Over Tiny Homes Began With a Bill by Bell and Ward For some Coloradans, the American dream is a spacious home. It might have four bedrooms, several bathrooms, high ceilings, a two-car garage, and a yard with a vegetable garden. For others, the dream looks much different, and the house, smaller, much smaller. A tiny home is a fraction of the dream, often a single room with a loft, and it can be had at a fraction of the price of a traditional home. Tiny homes are reality after Governor Jared Polis signed House Bill 1242 last year. The law recognizes tiny homes as a new option amid skyrocketing home prices. Prices have risen so fast in recent years that many Coloradans are simply priced out of the market. The Polis administration, in an announcement, said the law is meant to, quote, preserve and protect housing affordability and expand access to affordable housing. While tiny home builders have applauded the bill, it wasn't always that way. Builder Byron Fears said the legislation in its current form almost did not come together. They didn't have the realistic side of what a tiny home is about and what it takes to build a tiny home, Fears said. Fears is the owner of Simplicity Tiny Homes in Longmont. He is also the executive committee of the nonprofit Tiny Home Industry Association, which launched in Colorado under the leadership of former Governor John Hickenlooper and has expanded across the country. But Fears said the original draft of the bill had the potential to put tiny home builders out of business. He turned to State Representative Kathy Kipp, Democrat of Larimer County, one of the bill's sponsors. We did a Zoom call the next day and then another Zoom call the following day with more people involved, Fears said. Boon to the industry. Eventually, changes to the bill came and the industry got on board. The industry looks at tiny homes as a boon to the state's tight housing market, and they're supported by a movement, tiny house advocates who emphasize the environmental and personal benefits of living in smaller spaces. The dwellings can be as large as 400 square feet, but many are much smaller. Some cost around $50,000, with prices ranging up to $200,000, depending on size and amenities. Affordable, affordable, especially when compared to median Colorado home prices that are well above $500,000. Like regular homes, they must pass a code inspection to hook up to the water, sewage, and utilities. The new law also addresses manufactured homes, also known as mobile homes, simplifying contract and disclosure requirements and establishing a raft of standards from escrow to inspections meant to protect homeowners. Fierce said. Other, Fierce said legislators and others worked closely with builders, too. The new law relies on 2018 International Residential Code model, building codes written by builders around the world and adopted by individual counties, cities, and towns. The IRC's Appendix Q specifically addresses tiny homes and spells out the size and shape of the building's stairway standards, lofts, and doors. From industry to county, it all may sound dull, but those residential codes are the bread and butter of the business because they standardize tiny homes, giving builders, local communities, and buyers an idea of what they can expect. But writing the codes for national industry standards is one thing, getting counties to change zoning laws is another the new state law simply makes it possible for county officials to adopt tiny home rules of their own, Fear said. It's still going to take a lot of work to get the different counties to adopt the Appendix QIRC, which is what most of the building requirements will be based around, he said. Fear's group met with officials in Adams County and said they were not interested. Adams County officials provided no comment when contacted by Colorado community media. But Fear said other counties are amenable to the idea. Some counties are already talking to us, Fear said. Weld County began allowing tiny homes even before the state law passed. Tom Parco, director of the Department of Planning Services, said the county created its own policy a couple of years ago, allowing people to buy a parcel of land to park a tiny home. We wanted to make sure the tiny home was hooked up to either a well or public water system for potable water, and then also a septic system, Parco said. We still do require a permanent foundation, so the tiny home cannot be built on wheels. That would be considered more of an RV in a temporary situation. Requirements like that can be a sticking point for some buyers. Some tiny homeowners want to have a semi-permanent foundations that keep the home secure but allow them to be moved. The state is working on clarifications about the foundations, Fier said. It is one of the most significant sticking points, and that clarification will become guidelines counties can adopt or not adopt, Fear said. Weld County has more to explore, Parco said. The, count, the current rules treat a potential tiny home community like a mobile home park. It would allow somebody to buy 40 acres and then allow 20 tiny homes to park on one parcel, very similar to what you might find in a mobile home park, Parco said. Parco said it gets a little more complicated when considering utilities. Weld County is not a water and sewer provider in unincorporated areas and in communities like Fort Lupton. Special districts and utilities need to provide those services. Also, sewage and septic also have to be addressed, Parco said. It's those types of things we're kind of batting around a little bit to accommodate more of a tiny home community. But we certainly allow tiny homes in Weld County if it's just one per parcel. With tiny home living an option, Parco recommended contacting the local planning and zoning department in the county where you are interested in living before making a purchase to ensure they're allowed. Home sweet, tiny home. But for residents and buyers of tiny homes, all the regulatory wrangling is worth it. Sandy Brooks is one of those people. She was 75 years old when she purchased her tiny home in 2019. I'm older than most, and tiny homes are wonderful for older people, she said. I would rather buy a tiny home and live in it for many years than pay a lot for independent living. I feel like I'm living independently now. Brooks described her tiny home as akin to a small apartment. It has a bedroom, closet, living room, and office space. It even has a kitchen with a dishwasher and a bathroom with a washer and dryer. It has all the amenities, Brooks said. I love it. Don't regret it, and I'm grateful. I love my location. I live in Durango on the side of a mountain. It's beautiful. Brooks said her place is perched along alongside 24 other tiny homes, Quote, an engineer, therapists, and retired people live here, and our community helps each other out, Brooks said. We all communicate and respect each other, and it is a wonderful place to live. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. I'm Gregory Haddock.
1: Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast
0: on AINC.
1: Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite, I'll be reading Westwood's Jules Mendoza, who describes work as cultural surrealism, now has his own studio, by Isaac Vargas. And Not Funky Room Renovations Are Coming to the Convention Center's Hyatt Regency, by Kyle Harris. From Westward, I'll be reading Bark, But Don't Bite, Share Your Wolf Reintroduction Thoughts with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, by Katie Cheshire. And, Welcome to the World, Eight Photos of the Denver Zoo's Baby Sloth, by Chelsea DeCane Jerebeck. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These first two articles are from Denverite. Westwood's Jules Mendoza, who describes work as cultural surrealism, now has his own studio by Isaac Vargas. It was only a matter of time before Julio Mendoza, artistically known as Jules, opened his own studio. Mendoza, originally from El Paso, Texas, in Ciudad Juarez, has been an artistic wanderer of sorts, offering his services as a muralist and collaborating with local businesses to fund his dreams of being a full-time artist. We caught up with Mendoza at his new studio in Westwood as he marked the career milestone with a soft opening this past weekend. A little while before visitors arrived, Mendoza's partner was busy trying to wrap prints that would be up for sale while he tidied up and made sure his standing heater was warming up the cozy space. The small studio, located at 3800 Morrison Road, can fit about 10 people comfortably before they have to Tetris their way around the space. Its walls are lined with Mendoza's works, like a hand-embellished canvas print of a bison that he originally used as a mural for Far Out Mural Fest in 2022. Mendoza's art delves into Latinidad through interpretations of Aztec and Mayan culture and snapshots of foods and other items familiar to many Latino households, like elote, trompos, and lots of children. Wildlife also plays a role in his art. There was a time when it was difficult for Mendoza to describe his art to people. Eventually, he landed on describing it as cultural surrealism. My art is very rooted in my culture and mixes my childhood memories with bright colors, Mendoza said, and if you look long enough, it sometimes feels like the colors begin to move on their own. Mendoza, 32, can now display that work in Westwood, a place that's been his home for several years, thanks to help from ReVision, a non-profit in the neighborhood which offers space at its Rise Westwood campus, affordable for local artists. Mendoza is excited about the chance to experiment with projects in a space he can finally call his own. While the studio is officially in use, it will only be open to the public on special events and some first Fridays. Mendoza said he would let his social media followers know when they can visit. Last year, Denverite spoke to Mendoza about one of his first murals in Denver that he painted at Lupe's Auto Body on Mississippi and Sheridan. He did not have a portfolio of murals at the time. When he asked the owner for permission to paint a mural on his wall, the owner agreed and said, yeah, as long as you don't paint anything gang-related. Mendoza has experimented with digital projects and plans to keep working in that space. One of Mendoza's plans for the studio is to use the space to develop his podcast, Arte en Spanglish, a bilingual podcast that will cover all things art with other creators in the city. He wants to invite artists and collaborators into his studio to have dialogues about their own creative processes and careers. A year ago, in partnership with Racist Brewing Company, Mendoza designed three NFTs for the local brewery, He admits that he is still unsure about the concept of digital art, but he does understand the need to be innovative in a competitive market. It shows when the art you make is real, or if you are just following trends, Mendoza said, admitting that he is still coming to terms with the desire to authentically create and his need to financially support his career as an artist. Aside from painting, he also hopes to learn how to create custom rugs using a technique known as tufting. When asked how he felt about the future of his art career, he was quick to credit the Westwood community for embracing him with open arms over the years. He's excited about the opportunity to add to the fabric of what businesses like Cultura Chocolate and Ana Maria Studio are doing on the same street. It feels like community, Mendoza said, and that is all that matters. Not-funky room renovations are coming to the convention center's Hyatt Regency. By Kyle Harris. The Denver Convention Center Hotel Authority is getting ready to launch a massive room renovation at its Hyatt Regency Hotel at the Colorado Convention Center. The building, a brainchild of Mayor Wellington Webb's administration, opened in 2005 and has had several renovations since. At 38 stories, the building is one of the tallest in the city, and that's a whole load of rooms to rework, 1,100 to be precise. Such room renovations are a massive endeavor and a massive pain. Every seven or eight years, you do a minor room renovation, and every 15 to 20 years, you generally have to do a major room renovation, said Bill Mosher, CEO of the Denver Convention Center Hotel Authority. Minor room renovations, which have happened in the past, include replacing the carpet and furniture, painting the walls, and basic repairs. A couple of years ago, the hotel spent $12 million renovating its lobby and first-floor restaurants. But what's coming is bigger. For a major room renovation, we'll go in and redo lighting, walls, bathrooms, all new furniture, carpet, and all the hallways so that it appears new, Morsher said. That's the process we're embarking on. So what's the deal with the hotel? The hotel was created alongside the Colorado Convention Center. Initially, the Webb administration tried to find a developer willing to front the money for a project. When that didn't happen, the city created the Denver Convention Center Hotel Authority to fund the project. The authority, which is governed by a seven-member board appointed by the mayor and city council, owns the hotel. It was financed through tax-exempt bonds, but still pays all the same taxes any other hotel would. While the city has sway over the hotel... It is not paid for through any city funds. Renovation funds come from money set aside from earnings. If the authority ever sells the hotel, any profits will go back to the city. The renovation is a work in progress, rather almost in progress. The authority has sent out a request for proposals for project managers who are able to hire a team and guide the planning and execution of the renovations. Mosher's best guess is the project will be complete within three years. When the work starts, several floors of the hotel will be shut off for renovations at any given time, probably during slower winter months, but the hotel will not stop operating. What it will look like, exactly, is hard to say. A yet-to-be-hired architect will help decide what the new rooms will look like. Mosher's hope is that they are airy and reflective of Colorado, both themes of the overall interior of the building. We want to be timeless, Mosher said. That means whatever's installed needs to last, conceptually, but also physically. A convention hotel serves so many people and so many different types of people that you need to be really well done, Mosher said, and not funky, not hipster, just high quality. And we have a great reputation for that, and we want to keep that. The following articles are from Westward. Bark, but don't bite. Share your wolf reintroduction thoughts with Colorado Parks and Wildlife by Katie Cheshire. Making a plan for wolf reintroduction in Colorado is no walk in the park. It's more like plodding through a snowy wilderness. But the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission is up to the task, holding four meetings over two months specifically to discuss the plan and get the public's input. At the first of these meetings, in Rifle on February 8th, the Commission heard updates from Colorado Parks and Wildlife staff, listened to public comment, and held a structured discussion about several elements of the plan. The Commission was tasked with overseeing the process after voters approved Proposition 114 in 2020. The proposition calls for the state to reintroduce the gray wolf by the end of 2023. Colorado Parks and Wildlife released the first draft of its long-anticipated Wolf Restoration and Management Plan in December of 2022. The plan focuses on impact management and outlines measures that CPW can take to mitigate wolf conflict and help residents of Colorado, particularly ranchers, navigate the impacts of a reintroduced wolf population. All seven chapters, more than 300 pages, are being discussed at public meetings. The commissioners do not speak to each other except on these open mics, said Vice Chair Dallas May. In general, the public knows exactly what we know as commissioners. And the public had many thoughts on the plan, easily filling the entire time allotted for their comments. Many of those who spoke were outfitters and ranchers, concerned about how wolves would impact their businesses. Jenny Harrington... A leader of the Holy Cross Cattlemen's Association urged the commission to consider loosening requirements for compensation for ranchers whose animals are killed or injured by wolves, particularly the requirement that a vet needs to be part of the process, as there is a shortage of vets in rural Colorado. I ask that you not be so onerous with those requirements, but speak to some of these folks that you are seeing, she said. Her requests